Hi everyone, it's Joseph Harwood and I'm bringing you my podcast experience, Agitprop Interviews. I fell in love with podcasts after finding out how relaxing and interesting they could be. In this series, I will be sharing stories. I will be delving into different facets of what I'm interested in, from food to lifestyle to travel to spirituality, and I'm very excited to share this from an LGBT perspective. Please enjoy them. They're always peppered with things that make me a little bit more curious, and hopefully they'll make you a little bit more curious too. Today's episode will be an interview with the incredible Dusty O, or the artist formerly known as Miss Dusty O. One of my inspirations and often remarked as the matriarch of the London drag scene, she was a huge, huge, huge figurehead when I was growing up and going to all these incredible venues in London. Now, I was always in awe of her makeup and I always thought when I was a little kid and trying to learn my own way around makeup, how does she do it? Because there wasn't access to all of the incredible products today. But she was a Vivian Westwood clad superhero and definitely an important figure in British queer nightlife. Dusty has since stopped doing drag. I think the industry changed quite drastically as we spoke about in this interview. And she is now a curator of Pride in London's Queer Art exhibition. So she has been doing so many different things within artistic expression, which I think is really incredible because it just shows how many facets um, you can show to the world and create in. Now, we did this interview last year and I really wanted it to be um, kept until I could really share these podcasts properly with my audience. When I initially started the Agitprop podcast, I knew exactly what I wanted to do, but I wanted to test the waters out and see if I could reach enough people to make it a viable podcast. So I had no links to my mainstream YouTube. I had no links to my mainstream social media and was running it mostly on my website. So because I really tribute and honour Dusty I think she's fantastic and a huge inspiration to me. Um, I wanted to say this with the right timing. So it's been kept a little while, but I think it just makes um, all for the better. So please enjoy and let me know what you think. And don't forget to share on your social media. So um, thank you for being on the podcast. It's really exciting for me because we always used to consider you as kind of like this massive matriarch of the London drag scene and someone that was so influential and doing things like way before I think drag was taken seriously, um, you were making it into an art form. And <laughs> do you embrace that or how do you feel about it? <laughs> I was always kind of just, I was quite selfish about things. I was doing it for me, you know what I mean? I, I never intended to be that that and I was never that comfortable with it either to be honest um because I'm not I don't know I think if you if you sort of set yourself up into that position if you start thinking of yourself as this matriarch this mother of drag or whatever then you're really setting yourself up as a role model and I was always far too flawed and I'm far too flawed to be anyone's role model I always say that so I think it puts you in a kind of delicate and dangerous position um I would always say to anyone like you have to find your own way you know you have to find your own way of doing things and and living I can't tell you how you should and should and, and also that there there are no rules to that life you know you make your own rules and quite rightly so you know so yeah um, it was it was something that just went with the job because I was older because I've been doing it for a long time you know most of the people I worked with were half my age so I suppose it's natural but to be entirely honest I was never in I was never totally comfortable with it. So when I was younger I used to always think that drag was almost a bit 
kind of cheesy. I don't know. I don't mean that to disrespect drag because I love it, but it was not like an edgy, cool thing until I started to learn about more of the London scene, which you were a big part of because people in London were not taking the mickey out of themselves. They were becoming almost like a superhero in fashion and gorgeous makeup. And it wasn't a joke. It was more serious. And I remember seeing a picture by Gothra where you had these three gorgeous Vivian Westwood looks. Six different looks. It took a whole day to do that one picture. It was constantly like changing outfits and things and I had to get six looks together. And obviously makeup was slightly different on different looks and things. So it was just a whole day for that one single picture, but it was a beautiful picture. I love that picture. Oh my God, me too. And there's so many amazing pictures of you and I have been following you since I was a kid. So I did, <laughs> I did remember them all. <laughs> but did it always start off as drag? Is that how you would define it? But it wasn't drag. I never, I didn't do like titty drag until I was about 23. But I always, from the age of sort of 16, was very androgynous looking. And, you know, in those days, that we're talking about sort of 1984, 83. So it was kind of fashionable. It was just the thing that everyone was doing. It was a bit sort of like that whole gothy emo look that sort of happened later on. We did did that sort of in the early 80s. It was just after the new romantic movement. And basically it was kind of like fashion, really. If you wanted to be a bit edgy, if you wanted to sort of develop a look of your own and things, that was the direction that most people went in. And um, it was just something that I embraced at a quite early age. I was always fascinated with makeup. And I think because I always had quite a complex about myself not being very attractive, makeup was um, and hair and clothes and everything was... Uh, great disguise but I never considered myself drag in those days and it only really became drag drag when I moved to London really. So what was the reason that you moved into more of that traditional drag was it to open up more work opportunities? Not at all it was um I moved to London in 1989 and there was a club on at the time called Kinky Glinky and I always I've heard I loved, stories. <laughs> <laughs> I loved always loved nightclubs, always loved dressing up and everything. And I was working, I'd got like a proper job. And but going out three or four times a week. And um Kinky Glinky was kind of like just a crazy fashion drag club. It was like a, a giant version, I suppose, a mixture of tranny shack and uh circus and boom box and it was like a huge version of that. And they used to have massive parties in Leicester Square. And I'd say like about three quarters of the people would go in some form of drag. And that was when, for me, initially, like drag became sort of fashiony, mixed in with fashion. And that was always what I was more interested in. And I just kind of started like being a bit more experimental, like, you know, sort of doing the boobs, doing the swimming costumes and showing it all off and everything and because everyone else was doing it it didn't seem there wasn't really issues about sort of gender or anything like that it was just fun it was just a laugh and me being me I always took it to extremes and I wanted it to look perfect you know and so that was when I started initially doing drag and proper drag with boobs and padded hips and big wigs and things because I'd always had my own hair but yeah. obviously I wanted bigger hair <laughs> so, <laughs> and that was when when it sort of drifted into drag and I never ever really wanted to do that as a living I never wanted to be a drag queen I never wanted to be a DJ it just sort of like slipped into place 
and carried on far too long, to be honest. Quite a few years ago, one of my friends actually introduced me to this incredible person. I'm not going to bring her up on the podcast, but she basically maintained her home as if she was still going out to the Ginky Kalinky Club. So I got to see loads of old pictures and funny things. and It was like a time capsule and it was crazy because I felt I'd almost missed out. Yeah, but I felt felt the same about the Blitz Club and things like that. I was just slightly too young for the Blitz and slightly out of sync with Taboo. So I sort of like hit London just after those. So how you feel about kinky is how <laughs> I feel about those. So I do I do get that. <laughs> and a lot of people as well, you know, they get so wrapped up in that, that existence. And it was, you know, it was a fabulous, fun time. I suppose they just hold on to it. And like you say, their, their lives become a time capsule. And that very much, that happened to me, but a lot, a lot later, you know, I held on to things you know, 20 years after all that. And, Sometimes you really need a good clear out, don't you? And just think, okay, life is about now. <laughs> this yeah. is what's going on. <laughs> there was nowhere that you could just walk in and get something fabulous off the peg. You know, you had to go for it. And that's, I think that's the difference about now, really, because you only have to sort of go online, don't you? And you can get a decent lace from. We didn't have the internet. There was no internet. No, of course. And I find it fascinating because I travelled a lot when I was younger and I used to think, like, why is there more of a colour range for foundations in Asia than there was in the UK? I was like, you could get a pale foundation there and you couldn't get one here. Everything was quite distant and difficult to do. I used to do a mixture. I used to like to get that really pale base. I used to mix different foundations and I used to mix um, a Lancome one with a Dior one. And it sounds like there were two sort of like totally different sort of textures and everything. Mm. But I found that just through experimentation, really, that that mixing these two together got a nice concrete base, <laughs> you know, covered, covered everything. And it was Alla just... Paris, yes. <laughs> pale enough. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. And what, what was it about Vivian Westwood that you kind of fell in love with? Because I've seen you on, on this morning and I've seen you do an auction show where you spoke about your collection of, of Westwood stuff. Was she important to you in, in your self-expression? Oh, God, yeah, she always was. Um, the first sort of like, well, from when I was 16, really, because she was the point of reference that, that everyone sort of aspired to you know all the club kids wanted Vivian I was talking about her bondage trousers actually today because I gave my last pair of of Vivian bondage trousers away to a friend who I work with now today and I said well there was like um, a hierarchy of Westwood bondage of of bondage trousers not Westwood bondage trousers that if you were like quite poor and or studenty or whatever you always bought the bondage trousers from um Kensington Market and they were about 15 quid or something and then when you got a little bit more money you'd buy a pair from Boy London and then when you got a little bit more than that that's when you trip you got went to Vivian and got the Vivian so there was like a hierarchy of like bondage <laughs> houses. um and Vivian was always the top of everything and I always wanted to be perfect you know I always wanted my look to to be real, to be nice, to look beautiful and to be genuine and everything. So, yeah, I used to um, worship at the throne of Auntie Viv quite heavily <laughs> for many years. <laughs> she was brilliant in a day, though. She was. And, I mean, I'm not going to say she's gone off the boil now, but she doesn't do it herself now anyway, does she? Her husband does it. But for me now, it's not where I want to be. But... In those days, it was kind of like a mixture of, um, it was a mixture of fuck off 
and fashion and sort of prestige, I suppose. Had, well, she invented punk, didn't she, with Malcolm, mm. you know, invented that movement. And then she, you know, pretty much dressed everyone through the new romantic movement. She was absolutely, you know, a force to be reckoned with for years and years and years. And such a force of creativity. I, I think it's quite sad now how she's not as rated as she used to be, you know, but then she's an old lady now. She doesn't do much herself and she's, she can live on a legacy because a legacy is good enough. It stands by anything, I think. And now she just, you know, rabbits on about the environment. and <laughs> <laughs> Yes, with the Julian Assange stuff and the canary in the cage, I find her just a bit more contradictory than I used to now because sometimes I used to be so, like, amazed by the goal that she had when she would go on TV and talk about the royals. And then she's just, like, aligned herself with the Prince, Prince Charles's charity about the environment. So it's interesting how she's changed her position in some ways, um, even though I do support the Prince's Trust as I'm an ambassador and things like that. But it's, I'm fascinated by the contradiction sometimes, but she is an icon to me. <laughs> Considering in her punk years, she was, uh, she had t-shirts with abolish the monarchy and the yeah. Queen's head and all things like that. She, but you know what? The thing that I love about her, she contradicts herself constantly. And I do think sometimes she talks absolute rubbish. <laughs> so, and sometimes she talks like a genius, you know, but, the most important thing that she's doing is talking and is being heard and is putting stuff out there. You don't have to agree with it, you know. And I think that's, even if you don't agree with the, the message itself, the fact that she's just doing it, she's this old lady, the queen of punk, you know, and like, she's still got something to say. She's still doing her stuff. I think it's marvellous. Yes, me too. I still, like, if ever I get to the point where I can go back to Tokyo, there's an amazing shop in Tokyo called Closet Child, and all they sell is vintage Vivian Westwood and that elegant gothic Lolita, where they all dress like dolls. Oh, no, I've been there. I've been there. I, I love it. loved it. I, when I went there, I was like, oh, my God, I wanted to buy it. Like, I couldn't when I was a kid, but... Everything's really small sizes in Japan, don't you find? And you yeah. are tiny, though, aren't you? So I'm 63, so I'm tall, so I can fit skinny clothes, but they don't fit me lengthwise. I have to always oh, like, right, wear the belt right. panel. <laughs> but you are thin. I've seen your thin. Oh, I'm a little bit. I can put, I, I think because I'm, I'm built wide. I've got like wider shoulders. But that's why oh, I liked all oh. the Anglomania stuff because it always kind of draped and disguised yeah. the shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Well, you've got to have something to hang it off. Absolutely. Yeah. Right, it looks <laughs> nice, you know. <laughs> Apart from Westwood, did you have any, like, massive kind of figures in your kind of, like, stratosphere that you thought, wow, that is triggering something in me? Was there anyone else? People or... People or music or musicians? Yeah, um, well, from when I was a little kid, when I was 14, I was a massive Culture Club fan because obviously he was so visible, Boy George was so visible. <clears throat> and for any sort of like out of town freaks that hadn't got access to clubs and discos and fashion and things, he was the first point of call when, when his career started and he was in the papers and music magazines and things. And um, so, yeah, he was a huge influence, but I was a little, I was a baby, you know, I was 15, 14. And that, but he's just that desire, that individuality, that, fuck you all, I'll do what I want to do. If I want to wear lipstick, I'll wear lipstick. And believe me, in those days, 
if you chose to wear it on the street and you were a man, you were expect a slap in the face, especially where I'm from. Um, and it just, he was a sort of a, like a beacon, I suppose, for a, a sad, a sad little life. Because <laughs> I, I always wanted more, you know, from a little village in the Midlands. And I thought, there's God, there's got to be more than this boring rubbish. And then he appears and um, opened the door, really. So I've always got George to, to, to thank for that. But obviously then later on, I became friends with him when I moved to London. So that was kind of a surreal experience when your idol becomes your friend you know <laughs> absolutely and i've seen the pictures of you and and boy george and pete burns who i when because he was on the big brother show when i was growing up in school and i was just like oh my god this person talks like me they're crazy i love them but you were friends with pete burns too weren't you <laughs> yeah yeah i loved I, I miss pete a lot I just miss the the drama that he brought to everyone's life, you know, because he was very chaotic, very enigmatic, very intelligent, very self-destructive kind of crazy person. He was so many things and he could be completely changeable. One day he was this, then another he was that. But he was fascinating out of all of the people I've ever met in my whole, you know, my whole existence during that, during the clubs and blah, blah, blah. Pete was the most interesting, without doubt. I, I was 16 and me and my friend, we snuck into circus and it was the first time we'd gone out in London together and he was there. So and I was like, just being in the periphery was enough for me because I was so in awe of him. But it was, I wish I, I could have met him as an adult because obviously I think Gothra did his makeup at some point and when I did a couple of the shoots, it was like, oh my God, I do, I'm one degree of separation for him, from him. <laughs> Pete was a, a very strange person. He didn't used to really like other androgenes, particularly. <laughs> it was kind of, all Pete was interested in was Pete. You know, he okay. didn't have much interest in anything else or anyone else, unless you were contributing to him being Pete. And that I don't say that in a nasty way. I say it in a factual way. Anyone who knows Pete or knew Pete would say exactly the same. There was one thing that Pete cared about, and that was him. <laughs> you know, and, and if other people, he'd be saying, "Oh yeah, whatever." You know, he'd seen it all in any anyway and done it all. So it was kind of like, "Oh, okay." So she's got blue eyebrows. So fucking what? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was what he was like. He was very funny. Oh, do you think that there was a big kind of like difference between the people of that era that grew up in the north, like in the Liverpool and Eric's kind of scene, and then people that grew up in the Blitz in the south scene? Like, because there's, I think like people in the north end of the country were a bit more kind of like masculine in their kind of like socialisation. So like, I always thought like, whereas Boy George can read someone as incredibly witty in his retorts. Pete Burns was more like scary, like a man. If you upset him, he'd hit you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and he was hard as well. He was really tough person. Um, you wouldn't mess with Pete. You really, really wouldn't mess with him. I've seen him batter people. So, oh God. <laughs> yeah, Pete was, he was like a child of punk, you know, and like mm -hmm. he, he had what went, if you look back at the early pictures of Pete in sort of the, late 70s how he looked then was so extreme even compared to the punks you know it was way beyond sort of 
anything that they've known really and to survive in that world you've got to be tough you know i've got friends in birmingham i was never a tough person i was always a weedy one that hid behind the tough ones but i knew sort of drag and really androgynous people really extreme people and they had to be tough you know and that i i saw someone once on a bus one of my friends take his stiletto off and stiletto someone in the back of the head who was like <laughs> abusing and things like that and then later on picking hairs out of the heel going oh that must have been that one who i eat <laughs> but it was a different world in those days and you know it could be very very violent and it was a bit scary but mm. i think people were braver as well though they had to be you know yeah i think so too i think and the ability to to create these this fantastical image when there isn't the the accessible stuff that you can get now it's you'd have to go through so much more of a process to choose to stand out i always think like there's more of a strength in that than there is today whereas being different almost is mainstream in some degree like the more sensational you can make yourself look today it's it will give you an instagram which people think is like currency well you could you can do it without going out can't you yeah and anyone can be brave in their living room or in their bedroom with a mum and dad sitting downstairs. Anyone can, you know, it doesn't take much gumption, really. Try doing that 30 years ago, getting a bus an hour and a half into the nearest town with all the yobbos shouting things, throwing things at you, chasing you through the town just to get to where you want to go and be with a few like-minded people, you know. <laughs> it, it was a lot tougher, a lot more... You had to be a lot more determined, I think. But I'm not saying that's a totally good thing, though, really, because I think it's great that people can be creative in privacy and they can, you know, if that's all they want to do, if they don't want to go out and meet like-minded people, if they just want to talk to them through an iPad or whatever. Yeah. At least they're doing it, you know, at least they're trying, which is nice. Yeah. I I feel like now that drag has become this sort of talking point in mainstream media and RuPaul's Drag Race has been on TV, I've become more masculine, I think, as a result of people knowing what drag is. Now it's become accessible. I almost feel like I want to do the opposite of what's accessible and just to be still a point of view that's different. And do you think, like, all of this stuff that's happened within the RuPaul's Drag Race phenomena, do you think it's done good or bad for um, LGBT culture and drag queens in general? Well, it's a really difficult that one that is. It's one that I'm still actually working on, to be honest. I haven't can come to a final conclusion about it yet. Um, <laughs> it's, in some respects, it's brilliant that it's reached out and it's become what it's become and people are seeing it and, you know, some people are understanding it more and understanding people's need to be different and have their own identity and blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, the downside of it is that it's all become a bit sort of big brother, hasn't it? It's like, if you're going to dress up, you draw a line down your nose with a little silver dot on the end and you do this and you do that. And if you don't do that, you're not doing it properly. Well, that's not entirely how I see it, you know. So, and also... You know, when when something, I always saw drag as a bit like being um, suff, the suffragettes of the LGBT community. You know, we were the ones that got the slaps around the head. We were the ones that were shouted at. We were the visible ones, the obvious ones, the ones that were sticking their fingers up to the world and saying we're going to do it our way. And now it's not really like that. Now it's it's been a little bit tamed down. It's been a bit cleansed it's all a bit more safe and and I don't know if drag should be that you know but 
as I say, I haven't come to a final conclusion on it. <laughs> I'm sitting on the fence, to be honest. It's difficult because it's like we we live in this kind of like reality star driven world where people have like especially gay people i didn't think they could possibly have imagined that their outcome could have been like the kardashians but drag race has almost created an outlet for gay people to get that reality star experience and it's like well do you want to be a reality star or do you want to be transgressive with the way you look and and if you are transgressing the way you look what the hell are you saying and it's it's become like so like as you said it's like a uniform of what is dragging that moment and then the people that do like Matthew Anderson who did RuPaul's makeup he was like doing different looks every single time he did one of these looks with Zaldi in in the New York club scene and that's what was inspiring to me it was the ability to be different every time so it's like this similarity I think is 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 sad because it's like you don't even see what the person thinks anymore you can kind of see what people thought by the way they express themselves now who knows (laughs) It's it's been sanitised, hasn't it? Really? Yeah, sanitised a lot. And yeah. I don't know if that's a good thing. Most things get sanitised, though, don't they? If you look at sort of like we were talking about Vivian earlier, Vivian was sanitised and has been sanitised to a degree um, compared to you know how how it was in the seventies and early eighties. But I think most things do get sanitised eventually. They become a bit. When, they, when people have, um, what did they say, popularity breeds contempt, doesn't it? Once people are familiar with something and it, they become more exposed to it, it becomes less interesting after a while. Very true, very true. But you can think about like how people are getting their lips done and when Pete Burns was on like yeah. Big Brother, it was like a male straw around it. And it's yeah. like the girls that are on Geordie Shore look more extreme than he looked. <laughs> oh, God, you see see some of them now. It's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> Peter would have been having his talk off, I think. <laughs> yeah. Did you think, like, um, when you were working at Shack and you were working there for such a long time, and then there started to be this movement where people were saying the word tranny is no longer... An acceptable word. Like, what did you think about all of this? Um, I always used to say, if I want to call myself a tranny, I'll call myself a tranny. Um, because I think I'd earned the right to, you know, and it was me calling it me. But I, we finished just as that was sort of like really starting to kick in, you know. We had talked about changing it because we didn't want to offend anyone because simply it was a business, but mm. it was a very cherished business. It was one that we loved. So I loved it immensely and put a lot of passion and time and effort in it, into the whole scenario. And the object of it wasn't to upset anyone. And so I would have changed the name if, if I would have genuinely thought people were hurt by it or it was doing any form of damage. Um, I w- you know, I would have gone with it because it was never my objective to upset anyone. I wanted that night to bring happiness and fun and love and a sense of family. So I would have changed it. And I can understand some of the reasoning around sort of people being upset by it. But I think it's a little bit of a storm in a bra cut, really, isn't it? It's like there are more important and bigger issues than that that need yeah. to be addressed faster and with vehemence and, you know, some bigger than that, really. 
It's it's always been amazing to me that like because I was raised around my older drag queens and so many of my older friends are like, why the hell are these young people even chit chatting about this? Like, thank God they're not throwing bricks at you. You let alone calling you. God's sake. Yeah, and there's a, there's very much a sense of uh, preciousness in the current environment, which it. You know, well, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad. It's not for me to say. <laughs> <laughs> When you stopped doing drag, was it kind of like everything happening at once? It was, or were you planning to stop doing drag and choose to do your artwork in a different way? I think it would have happened eventually anyway, but it was kind of forced on me in a series of events that um, occurred. It was, and in retrospect, it was the perfect time. And what happened happened for a reason. And there was like a series of quite horrible things that happened to me and that finished it off, that put the nail in the coffin. It took it out of my hands, really. I didn't make that decision in my head, I will finish this now. It was kind of finished for me, put on hold. And in the meantime, I had to survive. And it was in the course of that sort of like year, really, after the club's club had gone, that I found a path that I felt that I could go down that was as fulfilling and gave me an identity and gave me some validation and made me happy. But the initial choice of, shall I end all this today? No, because the club was doing well, you know, Jack had been going 10 years and we were still getting full. It was busy, you know, it would have, and we were doing not just Shack at Jojo's, we were doing Shack North, at the Cap, Shack South, at the Eagle, Shack East, at, um, that place, Wayne Charles's place. We were touring with it. We'd done an album. We'd done a book. You know, it was it was very much um, a going concern. But then JoJo's had their big uh, drama, which I'm not going to go into for legal reasons. Sure. But and it was closed, and we could have taken it, I suppose, somewhere else. There was a couple of options. I but we. Walt and I, who ran it, preferred to sort of just give it a rest, to be honest. We felt we needed to just rest and see what happened. But then there was... So obviously that was sort of my biggest income, gone overnight. Yeah. But um, then there was a series of personal events that kind of each one put the nail in the coffin of that happening. And to be honest, I had to get a job. I was forced into getting a job. I was At the time when it closed, I was just... I was in Panto at Leicester Square Theatre and I knew that, which is really well paid, but I knew that when that finished, I would have like so many months before that I'd got enough money to survive before I had to really do something. And I just sort of like decided then really, oh, and I was slapped with a big tax investigation, a seven-year tax investigation, which had it gone not gone my way would have put me in prison probably. Oh, my Um, God. Yeah, it was terrible. And we were burgled and they took all Mark's electric stuff, his computer and everything. So, and he needed that to work and he needed it for his visa. So there was like, the potential was kind of like awful, you know, penniless, possible prison. Uh, my partner was possibly having to go back to Japan because he couldn't work here because his livelihood had been taken away from him. Uh, oh, it was just a nightmare. It was an absolute nightmare. Oh, I'm but- so sorry you went through that. It wasn't very nice, but gradually you put the bricks together again, don't you? And uh, and start building again, and and it takes time, and it you know it's not always easy. I 
for me it was very difficult because I sort of felt I'd lost my identity of who I was you know I was Dusty O but really I wasn't Dusty O was I I was pretending to be Dusty O yeah the real me was under there somewhere but I had to find him out and let him out again and introduce him to the world and and get used to being that person and not the other person and that takes a lot of time and a lot of adjustment and I'm still not there I would say five years on I'd say I'm still not totally there but you know I'm getting there <laughs> I totally I totally get it I because I, I didn't even imagine ever thinking of myself looking like a boy and I play with this boy image sometimes and I think oh my god these people in Starbucks still call me ma'am and I'm like I've got a fake beard painted <laughs> on and I'm like because I don't know how to do it it's like and I don't know how to do all these stuff and it's like yeah reach yourself again <laughs> yeah <laughs> But hey, it's like a phoenix rising from the ashes and, and you've done so many incredible things since Stop Being a Public Drag Persona and you've started to create this incredible art artist kind of career, which your paintings are so incredible and you use different mediums and it's very bright and colourful and everything's very graphic. Like, did you always want to do paintings like this or like did, was this just an amazing moment that just happened? <laughs> No, it happened. Um, I didn't. I never wanted to be. I mean, I never wanted to do to be a drag queen, really, and earn my money that way. But um, the art thing. I think after about six or seven months, I was working in a theatre. Um, just to, I was uh, duty manager, and not. It was really boring job. It was basically sitting people down and counting Pringles in a stock stock tote. <laughs> Absolutely hellish. So I'd got no creative outlet really. Um, but I mean, I liked the job. It, it had saved my neck, you know what I mean? It had saved me from being thrown out of my house and God knows what. But I had no create, there was nothing creative going on. I'd been signed to do Panto the next year, but that was like six months away. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? You know, this is like killing me. I hadn't been out, hadn't been to clubs. I wasn't doing any fashions. I was sort of living a very quiet, introverted life at home. Um, Mark, who done a lot of art and you know he's, he's has an art background they said well why don't you do a little bit of painting and got me a, some like really cheap little paints from the pound shop I think and a couple of little canvases that he'd got knocking around and I sat there and I fiddled around and did three or four of these little tiny canvases just for something to do put them as you do put them on Facebook you know everything <laughs> your life and um someone offered to buy them and I was like what you want to buy them? They're rubbish. And, but, you know, I'd sell, I sold them anyway, cut a long story short. And then I just thought, oh, I like doing this. It's really therapeutic. And when I started painting things that I had some meaning to me, I started to sort of um, understand what a process was, you know, the process of like, you have to live, you have to go through things, you have to experience things to make, what you produce have any value to have any part of you in it you know what I mean to sort of to be an expression of of who you are and what you want to say and it happened slowly at first I was just doing like little pop art pictures of pop stars and things and then gradually began to explore sort of like my own feelings about things particularly about gender and sexuality and a lot of my pictures even though they're fairly I use bright colors and things like that they're quite dark if you read read them as they're intended to be read, you know, they're not always happy pictures. Um, and gradually I sort of began to explore that a little bit more. Um, and it became 
more and more interesting to me that sort of side of it and also like a therapy to get me through what I'd been through because I needed some form of like self-expression some form of validation I needed to find out who I was and it helped me do and it is still helping me do that and then the we did the first, someone said to me, oh, let's do an exhibition. It was my friend who owned an, an art cafe. Um, her brother's autistic and they'd open this cafe for him really, which had displays art and for him to cook in. And, Cause he's very capable autistic. And um, they said, why don't you come and do a pit, do a gallery, an exhibition? So I just put like 15 prints and they sold and, um, I was quite surprised. And then I started getting loads of orders and things for prints, which was brilliant. And then it sort of dawned on me that, yeah, actually, this is something that you love. This is something that you could actually make into a kind of career, though I didn't really want it to be a career. I wanted it because I was frightened that it would then become something that I didn't enjoy doing or I felt that I had to do. So I always have kept it balanced. You know, I've, I've have a part-time job and my painting takes up two or three days a week but it's not everything you know I like that balance of having the two things because also painting's quite introverted and, and you, you're quite isolated while you're doing it and for me that's not necessarily a great thing for my mental health I need stimulation from people you know yeah but it, yeah it was kind of like a little journey and it just grew as it went along and I've always had this motto with, with this particular project, art, not to try too hard, to just let things happen. Because whenever I've, in my life, I've ever attempted to manipulate situations for my advantage or to get work or whatever, they've always gone wrong. So I thought, <laughs> well, with this one, let's just not have too, too many expectations. Let's not make a plan. Let's just do it and see what happens. And it kind of is still doing its own little thing, really. You know, like it changes all the time. The exhibitions got bigger and bit glitzier and then I got backer. And then, you know, there was the parliament thing. And then I was asked to curate the 52 thing for Pride. And now my work's been stopped in two galleries. And that's never happened before. That only started last week, you know, commercial availability. So, yeah, it's just... But I have no plan. I don't think to myself, oh, you know, you're going to be the next Grace and Perry. You're going to, you know, let, I'm not ambitious about it. I just have to let it, let it do its thing. And, and that's fine. I love that some of your paintings almost look like there's like a tribalism. Like, I can't really describe it. It's, it's like subculture. <laughs> I look they're so distinct though and they're it, I always think like with LGBT people like we in this time in this era we've always been kind of like suppressed and we've been told that what we are is not right but then you go back through all these historical cultures and you see LGBT people that have always done these kind of like storytelling or artistic outlets or they were the shaman and there's something that just happens and it's drag is kind of a form out of it I guess but there's always this kind of like underlying magical stuff that needs to come out of us. And it's always like, there's an element to that so much in your work that I think stands out. Do you, <laughs> it definitely does. It's all colorful and magical. <laughs> I don't paint for decoration. Everything has, it's not just like, you know, wallpaper. I always say that to people. It has, <laughs> there is a story 
whether you choose it's up, not up to the person who wants the, the work whether what they see in it that's entirely up to them you know once it's done it's done it's gone i've no interest in it anymore but there is there is in every single thing i've ever done there always has been like a a bit of me and a bit of something a bit of thought or an experience or and putting it down on a sort of canvas you, you know i'm i'm limited in that in my ability to sort of turn my thought into something visible in that I've never had art training I've never you know the techniques and things like that I'm still limited with I'm still experimenting I'm still pushing and trying to learn how to express those thoughts in a way that they actually look like when when they're finished on the canvas what's going on in my head (laughs) yeah (laughs) I remember seeing the early pop-up ones you did and you did the queen if I'm not mistaken now, I don't know if I've imagined this, but are you like really into the royals or have, was this, did you used to be into the royals? Because I thought, I, I thought somewhere in my brain, I remembered reading something you posted on Facebook like many years ago about the royals. And I was like, should I ask that or not? I didn't think if it was my imagination playing tricks with me or not. <laughs> oh, but I am really, really interested. But what I'm interested in is um, power and privilege. And obviously royalty epitomises power, privilege and the status quo and you know that is something that's very very fascinating to me and I think what an extraordinary position to be sort of like born and having to do that you have no say in it the queen didn't want to be the queen you know and like but my interest is slightly broader than that it's like I was quite into genealogy oddly enough and still am I could tell you all about every sort of ruling house in Europe really and reigning house or non-reigning as most of them are now like the Bourbons the Habsburgs the Savoys you know the Braganzas in Portugal the Hohenzollerns in Germany the Romanovs in Russia the Windsors in England the Bernadottes in Sweden and how they and I know how they're all connected because obviously it's one family basically it's all of the royal families of Europe are one family. They're all related in one way or another. And that had been going on for a thousand years. And that's interesting, you know, how that happened. It's really, really interesting how they held on to the privilege and the power. And now what we've got is kind of like, if you imagine, um, if you imagine a little island, a little tiny island in the sea, in, it's only the tip of the, the island is like the tip of a mountain. Underneath is all much bigger. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And that's what we have now. What you see is part of like a much bigger institution that, that reaches ever into everything, really. And it, it's bizarre and it doesn't make any sense and it's mythical and it's also not really... I won't say it's wrong, but privilege, born, when you're born privileged, it's not great, you know. But it's just fascinating and it, it fascinates me. So, yeah, I do have a fascination with it. I'm amazed. I want to ask you all questions about the families now. <laughs> so, you know, like, are you seeing, like, the yesterday, for example, people were posting on Twitter that there was a petition or, like, a, a display, a riot outside of Buckingham Palace about Prince Andrew. And, and I think a lot of people feel that there's in this, like, revelation where this Jeffrey Epstein connection's been kind of minimised but then there's been this harsh treatment of Meghan Markle and like I don't know what my gut is just to observe at the moment and see what's going on but did you 
Do you have an opinion about all of that stuff that's going on? I don't think it's anything new. You know, yeah. I think if you look back at sort of even, you know, in, in my lifetime, everyone knows the Duke of Edinburgh played away and was unfaithful to the Queen. And there was a big scandal where he was pictured in some house of ill repute and, you know, his face was faded out. And and then if you go further back than that, there's like the Queen's great... The Queen's grand great-uncle, who would have been king, he was like well-known gay person, homosexual. He was kind of snuffed out and moved away, sort of. And there's always been scandals. They're a family. They're, they're people. They're human. And But because they're in this ridiculously strange world that they inhabit of privilege, of deference, and a world that must be... You know, I can, we can hardly imagine it really, you know, being bowed and scraped to and, you know, the titles and all, the, all that nonsense. They're going to fail, aren't they? Because they're human mm. and they're put into situations like the Andrew and the Jeffrey Epstein situation. I'm not saying it's the right, you know, I'm not saying it was good what, what happened, but I don't know many young men or men men of his age even who had they been handed something on a plate that appeared to be acquiescing to his desires <laughs> that they would have done anything different really if they thought that they could get away with it but it is i mean obviously underage sex is awful it's wrong you know it's wrong to but did he know? I don't know. I, 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 think, I think it's very difficult to judge. And I think, obviously, I, think, I don't think Meghan was treated very well. And I, I think as an institution, it's just fucked up. That's what makes it interesting. <laughs> this is why I was so fascinated when they asked me to be a Prince's Trust ambassador. Because I go to these awards and I see the Prince walk past and I'm like, this is so weird. All these people are like real people because you don't even, I didn't even imagine I would see one of these people in like real life. And then I was like, oh my God, that's actually a real person. Yeah. And he, they all think and feel the way we feel, you know, and <laughs> make mistakes and do do bad things and do good things. You know, it, they, they are human. It's a very fascinating um, world. I have to quiz you another time. Maybe we can get dinner when we're allowed to go out of lockdown and we can talk about it. <laughs> I think they must have absolutely vile lives. I do. I think it's like a cage in so many ways. And and I would hate to be just m myself in a situation where you kind of have this expectation of being in a straight couple. <laughs> yeah. Just it's, that on its own. <laughs> it's totally bizarre. The whole thing is just totally totally bizarre which I think makes it more interesting really yes. but, you know but Andrew I don't know Prince Andrew he could be a nice person that made a terrible mistake and didn't know or he could be a horrible old lecturer that knew exactly what he was doing and manipulated the situation but I don't think we'll ever entirely know with that because the powers that be with the you know institutions and the oligarchy in this country will never let us know unless there's some form of huge revolution and it all comes out in the wash but Yes, unless we storm the Bastille and we steal the crown jewels. Yeah. <laughs> but that didn't exactly do 
book, did it? No. <laughs> look at it. If you look at it in a historical perspective. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They got Napoleon after that, and he was a dictator. The Russian ones are the ones that I'm so intrigued by. I just think, like, oh, my God. Because I've read all these, like, conspiracies about, like, all the little children being shot, and they found some of the corpses and some genealogy was meant to be, like, hidden amongst civilians. And I'm, I'm just, oh, my God, I love all the... It's very, yeah. The Romanovs are really interesting yeah. because it's obviously, in, it's almost for some people in living memory, you know, like I remember my nan talking about, you know, the Tsar, my great nan talking about it. And I'm like, oh my God, you actually were, you remember when that ha- happened, you know, when when they murdered the family and things. And, and the whole thing about like, did they or didn't they? Well, they obviously did because they've got all the skeletons now and they've done yes. DNA tests to relatives and everything. So all that nonsense about Anastasia surviving and all things like that. But and the thing that fascinates me about that was how stupid they were. And how, you know, it was like, could they not see that coming? Could they not have done anything to it? I would have seen that coming. It was so obvious. And like, Oh my God, did you really, they must have actually really, really believed. Well, they did. He did believe that he was God's anointed and that it would all be fine, but it wasn't. <laughs> yes. But who is the per- who are the people that are around them that are like the kind of unnamed names in history that have protected them from having a realistic viewpoint of the world? I'm always interested in like who, because there must be so many people that have just been like axed out of the history books just because they were a bit different or they didn't want their names in there. But there must be some sort of level of coercion to make people so like oblivious of themselves. I just, I'm like, that's the bit that I find like, who are these people around them? Because they've kind of just been like these rich royals and just not been aware. <laughs> the old royal, the old royalty, like the Romanovs and the Habsburgs and things, <clears throat> they lived in um, they lived in a way that was so not like anyone else. You know, it was just that in those palaces, surrounded by you know, the, the Tsar had he's in his personal retinue, a thousand people, so there was someone to do everything. You know, and it, everything was so regulated by etiquette and rules and things that had been handed down since like Peter the Great and things like that. That literally they functioned in a world and did what they did in a world that no one else could have possibly understood or functioned in themselves had they not been in it, you know? But to them, it was normal. It was totally normal, you know? Like, none of them knew the value of money or anything like that. You know, that was proven sort of when the Tsar's mother, who was Danish, left Russia in the revolution. She went back to Denmark and she took a lot of her jewels with her and sold them all off at ridiculously low prices because she didn't know. And there was no one to tell her that actually, you know, you shouldn't sell that for that. That's worth a bit more than that. (laughs) It was just, they just lived in this, this strange bubble really. And very, and the Tsar and the Tsarina were very religious as well. They believed in mysticism and all sorts of things like that. And then they had this very sick son who um, everything was sort of, you know, aimed at getting the son well and keeping, passing on the legacy and blah, blah, blah. And it all just went really, really wrong. It it should have been, you know, it should have all gone. It should have been wiped away. It was terribly unfair. Yes. Could could have been done in a nicer way. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking of selling off jewels. When you stopped doing drag, did you get rid of all your drag stuff? Because it wasn't just drag, it was like 
bespoke couture fashion pieces. <laughs> over the period of about three years, I got rid of, say, 95% of it. Oh, oh my God. No, I don't mind. I was never going to wear it again. I'm never going to be a size 12. Do you know what I mean? And what good is 20 pairs of Westwood Jillies? <laughs> when I don't wear shoes like that anymore. Yeah. No, it was very useful. I, I, th- I was glad that I had it because when I needed it, it saved my neck. But it has all gone, yeah. That's funny. That's Well, that's a good way to, to look at it. They were like your paints of that era. They were. They were my assets. Yeah. I wisely. <laughs> I thought, and I say that to people now. I still say, oh, well, when you buy, you know, if you buy a designer, think about whether in five years, 10 years, 15 years, that's going to be something that you're going to be able to make money on. I mean, I I sold a lot of my stuff for more than I actually paid for it. So, you know, it was. I was always very careful about what I bought. That's very wise, everyone listening. So, have you got any exhibits? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any exhibits or any work? Because you said you've done lots of work through lockdown. Have you got anything coming up that people need to know about? At the moment, I've got. I curated the first um, LGBTQ plus London Pride in London art exhibition, which unfortunately is only online. Um, but it's called 52 because it's been 52 years since decriminalisation of homosexuality. And we wanted one piece of work for each year since uh, decriminalisation. So we've chose 52 artists. Well, they submitted work and then we, we had a procedure where um, people like Sue Perkins and Denise Welsh and some really well-known artists we went, went through all the submissions. And they curated a hundred pieces, which were then presented to me, and I've curated the final fifty-two. So there's that that's going on now, and we're hoping that once COVID's finished, we're going to be able to exhibit that properly in a gallery. There was a lot of talk from really good galleries um, of wanting to do it because it's a first, you know, it's a, the first of its kind. Really, nothing's happened like that in this country before. Um, so yes, hopefully. This one will, after COVID, will will be made public in a gallery, um, as opposed to just being visible online. But we're going to do one next year as well. It's done really well. And it's been a big help to the artists as well, because the work's for sale. Uh, 30% goes to Pride to help fund their different projects. And the rest goes to the artists, um, which, as you know, in COVID times, we're all a bit broke. <laughs> so if, if people want to buy one, then please do, because you are supporting the LGBTQ queer community <laughs> by doing so. And yeah, so that's all going well. And as I said before, my own stuff, all pretty, as talks of exhibitions and things is very much on hold at the moment, because what's the point? You know, you can't, yeah. you can't plan. So I've got, I've now got pieces in um, Subversion Gallery. I've got 15 pieces in Subversion Gallery in Glasgow, which is sort of contemporary gallery, really sort of quite edgy, I suppose. Um, so, you know, it's a nice little left-wing feel to it, that gallery. And that's the first time my own work's ever been in as limited edition prints um publicly accessible really and there's another gallery in England on the coast that I'm in negotiation with at the moment um that are going to be stocking originals not prints so yeah it's 
just doing stuff, you know, it's just uh, <laughs> doing its own thing, really. That's like, and you've got social media. You're not like a super social media fanatic, though, are you? But you do have all your work on social media. I quite a lot. I don't have like trek 20 million followers like some people for doing nothing but yeah uh, <laughs> but then you know i'm older i'm, I'm gayer um, so well, where can I, I accept you? my limitations are you you're at dusty o is dead on twitter is the username is that right so dead on twitter and on uh instagram i'm art by dusty o on facebook i'm still just dusty o Perfect. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. I often put some of my originals for sale on um, social media. So if people did want to buy an original, not a print, it's usually better to just come direct to me. And they're not as expensive as people think either. (laughs) I will link them all on every website thing I can put it on. So I'm... I'm so happy to have spoken to you, Poppy. That was so exciting for me. <laughs> oh, I don't know why. I'm banging on. <laughs> no, it's interesting. We do have to catch up like properly in person when we're allowed to be sociable. Do you come up to London? I do. I come up there now and again for work things. I've been up there three times since lockdown, but I used to be up there nearly every week. I just do like random daytime things. I'm not, I, I need to be more sociable. Next time you're up, just text me. And if we if we meet for half an hour for a cup of tea or something somewhere. Oh, okay. That would be amazing. All right, then, lovely. Well, thank you again for taking the time to speak to me. And thank I will... You. Thank you. Very honoured. Perfect. All right, I'll speak to you soon, then. Thanks, love. Bye. Bye. So... For me, this was an amazing episode and I can't wait for you guys to give me some feedback and see what you think, because sometimes we have lost the link in the chain when it comes to LGBT history and the language has changed and intention has changed with language. So I've carefully tried to remove any words in this episode that might be offensive to younger trans people that don't know that that's a way that people used to share um, endearment. And it was also a very big business within London. Um, Terms have changed and now we adjust, but... It's interesting to see that and I think we can't just dismiss the things that have happened because they make us uncomfortable. We have to still embrace them and talk about them. To me it was more important to give an open conversation because I think we need to have a record of all this stuff. We can't just sanitise what's actually been happening during our cultures. We need to actually learn from it and embrace it. So to me Agitprop was always intended to be a record of things that I wanted you guys to learn from and to embrace and I was so honoured that Dusty said yes. Please check out all of Dusty work across the social media and also um, send them some love for their incredible paintings which are probably going to be exhibited I think when lockdown opens so cannot wait it was an amazing one hope you're all doing well take care and I will see you in the next episode